Hi there, this is Terry bringing you another episode of the Animation Industry Podcast. Here is a chat with filmmaker and stop motion animator Adam Chilfi. And what's interesting about Adam's journey is that while most people I talk to are currently in the animation industry, Adam actually left to pursue his passion for independent stop motion filmmaking and has pursued a career outside of animation that lets him support that. So if you're thinking about pursuing the independent filmmaking route, this is an excellent listen since Adam shares exactly what it took for him to realize his dream and how he goes about filming production in his basement, which is quite incredible since his few short films have won something like 30 major awards from festivals all over the world and have been nominated for twice as many. I actually was first exposed to Adam's work after seeing references to it in Chris Walsh's Stop Motion Filmmaking Guide. And if you're a stop motion fan, you'll definitely want to check out his work because his style is super unique and I've actually never seen stop motion done so smoothly before. So I've included some links to his work in the description of this podcast. So please take a look. Now, a little bit more about Adam. He also has a degree in film production from York University in Toronto, and he worked as a professional stop motion animator on various projects with Cup of Coffee Studios. But more about that in the chat, so let's dive in. Hi there, Adam. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on the chat. Uh, hi, Terry. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in talking to you about this one thing, because most people that I've had on this chat you know, their dream is to have a career in animation. And you've kind of had the career in, in animation, but you quit that to pursue it as a hobby on the side instead of professionally. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, it, it goes through a lot of, of, of phases in terms of, of how I ended up where I ended up uh, in terms of, of making my own projects. And it, it basically came down to sort of becoming disillusioned with with the industry and because I was very interested in being a director first and an animator second, um, I was I wanted to make my own projects. I wanted to tell my own stories. And it's very difficult to do that, uh, to be the one in charge. Um, even, even if you rise within the industry in, in, in different companies, the majority of the work that you're gonna do is gonna still be for other people. If you right. want to actually be the one who is driving the, the story, like there's very few people that actually get that opportunity to do that. And what happened was, you know, after after, you know, 20 years of working, I just felt like I didn't want to I didn't want to compromise anymore. And I just felt like I don't need to work in the industry anymore. I can just do this on my own and tell my own stories. And and this way, you know, no one censors me. I can I can do any story I want whenever I want. It takes a lot longer, mind you. But uh, and then the term hobby, it is it is appropriate. Uh, but the way I like to think of it is more like a professional hobby. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, the quality you're producing is extremely professional. So did you ever have an opportunity to direct if that's what you're pursuing? Um, in terms of actual, I, I pursued it for a long time. I mean, if we go right back, uh, when I was, uh, I graduated from university, uh, uh, production course at York University. And when I came out of university, I was interested in my own projects. So, you know, I would initiate my own projects. And over the course of, of my early career, I initiated probably a half a dozen projects that, uh, that that actually got made. Uh, but there's a lot of work that goes into that in terms of raising money. You, you know, you if you're the one who wants to do it and you're raising the capital and you're getting the crews together and you're getting the actors and everyone together, it's a lot, a lot of work. And yeah. I did that with live action. I did that with animation. And, and today I'm where I'm at. And I'm, I'm actually quite happily doing what I'm doing now. 
So one more thing, you mentioned you became disillusioned. What was the illusion that kept you going, I guess? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is, is a lot of, a lot of what happened, um, everything will stem around the film, the lady of names, uh, yeah. when, uh, which was the feature that I made, uh, when I wanted, I guess I have to go right back to, to how I got to making that film and how that whole film, you know, ended up being the crux of, of 15 years of my life. Um, so if you go right back to, to graduating out of university, uh, what happened was as soon as I finished university, I wanted to make my first film and I wanted it to be an animated film because growing up, I had done a lot of stop motion animation and I really loved it. And I thought I could get the most production value if I did something in stop motion as opposed to live action, because we're talking about 1989 here. Uh, so there's no, there's no, there's no consumer video that's easy to there's no digital there's no nothing that you can get that's cheap everything ha is very expensive you're shooting on film right so film itself is expensive you're shooting 16 millimeter you know 100 feet of film will cost you 200 uh bucks to purchase process and print and watch and do your fine fine uh print from that so it's very expensive and the way I figured I could cut costs is if I did an animated film, um, I could be very, very conservative in terms of the initial money I would need to make the film. So what we did was uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Mike Stokes, who uh, was a screenwriter. And uh, he gra he was in the master's class at York when I was in my final year. We met and we were very much like minded in terms of the things we liked. And so upon graduation, uh, I worked for a year. But I approached him and said, would you be interested in writing me uh, a script for a stop motion film? And he said, sure, I'd love to. And we sat down and we talked about what would work and what wouldn't work. And uh, I, I told him a bunch of things that, that I swear he just completely ignored. I, I told him, I don't, you know, flying, flying objects are hard to deal with. Uh, you know, there's no rig removal at this time, right? So flying is hard. You know, multi-legged creatures is hard, you know try to keep the number of humans down to, you know, just a couple, don't no crowd scenes and stuff like that. And he, and he said, oh, okay. And he, he took off and I started designing characters. And uh, when he delivered the script, it had like dragons and flying boats and floating castles. And I, I just thought, what the hell? How am I going to do this? And, and it actually took a while for me to convince myself that it could be done. So at that point, um, what we did was uh, we figured, well, Let's see if we can raise some money to do this. And uh, we basically, we took the script. We had a, a few people that were going to work on it myself. We had an editor at the time. Uh, Mike was on it. I had a, another person who was helping with production design. Um, and so we made made a booklet, basically. And we put the script in there. We put the tentative budget in there. And we put the people working on it. And we gave it to people, friends, relatives, anybody we could think of who might be interested in investing in the film. And... Uh, we ended up raising about 6000 bucks, which was great. Uh, I figured that was enough to get shooting. So I basically, I packed up all my puppets, let the, the lease on my uh, apartment in Toronto lapse, and moved back down to my parents' place in Niagara, and spent the next year just working on Attic in the Blue. And it was a great experience. I mean, I, was, I, I approached it exactly like I would any job. Get up in the morning, do a shot, have some lunch, do two more shots in the afternoon, have some dinner, plan the next day's shoot, and then repeat that for six days a week and then take one day off. And so over the course of nine months, I was able to finish this 27-minute film. But again, it's, it's finished insofar as it was shot, but it's not completely finished because 
when you're shooting on film, you have to cut the negative. There's there's sound. There's there, there's sound uh, edit that needs to be done. Music, all that kind of stuff. So we were out of money. I moved back to Toronto, and I can't remember who was the contact, but uh, somebody had had uh, arranged for us to show the film to the NFB. So uh, Mike and I went to the NFB with this this work print. So it has. Sorry, the NFB is just the National Film Board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the National Film Board. Sorry, yes, the National Film Board of Canada uh, on John Street in Toronto. Uh, someone had had set up this meeting for us, which was great. Uh, we were completely freaked out because you know I was worried that the film was going to snap in the projector because it, it was you know spliced together using tape the way you did it back then, and I had double spliced it, meaning the tape is on both sides of the print so that it didn't break, and there's no audio at all. Now, the film itself didn't have any dialogue. It did have a narration that, that, that was through the whole thing. So it was told through visuals anyway. But it's still very nerve-wracking to sit there and watch a 27-minute film that has absolutely no sound with a half a dozen people watching it. And you just think, they're hating this. They're hating it. I know they're hating it. <laughs> right? So, uh, But what ended up happening is the lights came up and, and they turned around and they said, hey, you know what? We really like it. What do you guys need in order to finish this? And we just thought, oh, this is crazy this is great so they provided us with post-production facilities they got us a mixing time in montreal they they allowed us to go up there for a week to work with one of their mixers uh it was great it was absolutely fantastic and it was the last time it was ever going to be that easy with any film (laughs) because wait that that doesn't sound easy at all (laughs) but but um so going back to my question about the illusion what was that illusion through all this experience that you that you became disillusioned to, I guess, like, well, the main thing that that happened much later uh, at the beginning, at the beginning, it was it was it was fantastic. You know, to me at that point, this is great. You know, everything's working out well. What happened was when I when I wanted to make my feature, you know, I had done a couple of of, of short uh, live action films between uh, Attic in the Blue and when I wanted to launch the feature and, and they had been. Uh, relatively successful insofar as I'd been able to get broadcast licenses for them. And, you know, they generated enough money to finance the next one. So after I finished three films, I figured I'm ready to do a feature. And so I approached Mike again and I said, hey, I think it's time we do a stop motion feature now. And uh, so he he went off and wrote it. I started I started working on puppets. And over the course of a year, um, I would come up with some designs, show it to him. He would he would he would say, "I got a character that's going to look like this." He'd tell me, and I'd go and, and design that. And I, over the course of a year, we did that back and forth. And then he handed me the script. And at that point, we we thought, "Okay, what's the best way to proceed?" Because I really liked the script, and I had a half a dozen characters. And we decided, "Hey, why don't we shoot like a two or three minute trailer?" So we went and did that, and uh, used that along with the script to try and raise money. And we sent it to all of the Canadian funding agencies that we could find. Uh, at the time, they were Telefilm, Ontario Film Development Corporation, Toronto Arts Council, Ontario Arts Council, uh, National Film Board, ev- everything, as well as as many production houses that we could find that would be interested in in looking at it. Uh, but right across the board, we were rejected. We thought we had enough experience by this point to maybe convince people that we could do this feature. I mean, Mike had already had a feature film produced, and and I had three films that had broadcast licenses, and I thought, okay, no, we should be able to do this. So what After, was the biggest reason for the rejection then? Do you, do you know why people Oh, yeah. I, basically, most of the people would say, we're not convinced that 
you guys can pull this off. This is a well, really they should have just waited fifteen years because well, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you 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 hope that they would see past your inexperience at that point because you know we were about thirty years old at this point, right? So we're not that young, but we're not that old either. And yeah. we figured, hey, you know, we're up and coming. At least that was our perception of ourselves at the time. You know, this is nineteen ninety five, ninety six, somewhere around there. Um, but, you know, essentially they said, no one's going to believe that you guys can pull this story off with the money that you're asking for. Now, if I may remember correctly, we were asking for like 1.5 million bucks. So we were actually trying to raise a real amount of money. But yeah, it's a lot of work. Big. It is. It's a, it, And even for then, even for then, that wasn't a lot. Uh, so gets, do you think do you think when you were pitching this, they were sold on the idea and it being stop motion and the story, they just didn't trust you guys? Or was it? A little iffy all around. Well, no one ever mentioned stop motion uh, specifically as being an issue, um, yeah. and 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 we would we would go into meetings. I mean, we probably only did about a half a dozen meetings, but we would go in there and I would bring the puppets with me. Uh, they, they were mm-hmm. camera ready, right? And and everybody was was really intrigued by by these things because you know you know people who don't know stop motion puppets when they first oh, get yeah. their hands on them they just love them right look yeah. at how poseable they are and these were I mean I had designed some pretty decent uh, ball and socket armatures for these guys they were all foam rubber all fully painted fully articulated some of them had faces that had 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 uh, paddles inside them so that you could do wild expressions you know and I just thought you know this is going to be able to sell them to say look we can do this and we've done this with no money imagine what we we could do if you gave us money you know that's essentially how we were selling ourselves uh, so no one no one mentioned stop motion as being a hindrance but you also have to remember that at the time aside from nightmare before christmas uh i don't think james and the giant peach had had actually come out yet uh at that time there was no stop motion features like this simply wasn't you, you would know of the stop motion stuff that was on television at christmas time and those types of things but there was no features being made exclusively using stop motion so, you know, no one said it wasn't a good idea, but, you know, Disney was just was just really getting big again. Little Mermaid had come out and, and that kind of stuff. So all of a sudden, everyone's focus was on cartoons, right? Cartoon animation as opposed to stop motion. No one's focus was ever honestly at that time. No one's focus was on stop motion. By by that point, it was it was a niche thing. It, it still continues to be somewhat of a niche thing. It's much more popular today than it's probably ever been. But at the time, you know, it wasn't going to happen. The thing is, I had invested two, two and a half years in this process now. Um, And so I just figured, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start. So I set up, you know, basically in my basement and picked a scene that was the easiest scene in the film in terms of number of characters and and but but had enough meat on the scene to, to show something. And that ended up uh, taking me a year to shoot that scene. But it was a four, four and a half minute scene. It was this, this big spider and one of the main characters. And it was it was a very good scene. Um, but it took a long time. By this point, I had uh, I finally had a frame reference system. I hadn't had anything like that in the past. And it was so exciting to be able to have video reference. I had the, the, the video, uh, sorry, the lunchbox the right. Toolworks lunchbox. I don't know if anybody remembers those. It oh, held pre- a- pretty much every stop motion animator that's been on this has mentioned that. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> was, it, was, <laughs> it was crazy, but uh, you know, it held 11 seconds and it cost 3000 bucks and it was all standard definition. And if you unplugged it, it was gone. <laughs> so it was, it was a fun thing to have, but I mean, it was video reference. It's all that mattered, you know? So, so wait, while you, while you started this, were you also working on the side in animation? 
Um, I was actually doing motion graphics for news at the time. Um, so I and my shift was such that um, it was it was really, really conducive to working on an animated film. My, I was working from two till ten. Um, and so I had my mornings off and I had my weekends off. So I would get up at eight. I would animate a shot every single day, Monday to Friday. I would go down and they'd shoot another shot, shoot another shot. And I'd always pick stuff that I knew I could get done. You know, shots that were three, four, five seconds long at the most. Uh, usually dialogue scenes, not big action scenes that would with multiple characters. Something simple. So I would shoot every morning. And then on the weekends, I'd probably shoot a half a dozen shots. That, so, that so, is insane, though. Like, so you wake up at eight, you shoot for a few hours, then you go to work for a full shift and then come home and I guess hopefully sleep. How do you yeah. keep that drive going for so long? It, it it does it does wear on you and uh, it's but when you start seeing the results uh, yeah. you, it, it can motivate you as well right um, now you got to understand at at this point I was still under the impression <laughs> that I was going to produce enough material this way to convince someone to let me do it full time right see. so everything was a means to an end. Uh, with with la with the lady of names that that like I said everything over a fifteen year period revolved around that film, and after about a year year and a half actually uh, a colleague of mine actually said hey you know there's this company I just I just went to talk to them uh, and they gave me a tour of the place you should go talk to them because they do the same kind of animation that you do and I mentioned them you to them and they said you should give them a call I said oh okay what is it and they said that it's cup of coffee animation. And I went, oh, okay. I'd never heard of them. You know, again, this is 2000 now, uh, January 2000. So I gave them a call. And now, again, my thought process was maybe I can get them interested in helping me with my film. Right. So I gave them a call and I spoke with uh, Dave Thomas, uh, the director there. And uh, they were very small at the time. I think they maybe had a half a dozen, maybe a dozen people there at the time. They had six very small stages. And, um, uh, you know, so, he so said, you came into the studio and you're like, these guys are going to produce my feature film. <laughs> that, that's how I was thinking at the time. And, and it may have been completely ridiculous to think that way. But but my drive was very much I'm going to make this thing one yeah. way or another. And so when I went there to look around, you know, I just thought, hey, you know what? They have some facilities here. This is pretty this is pretty interesting. Drop everything, uh, guys. <laughs> <laughs> drop everything. I've got your next project. Right. But uh, what ended up happening was, was you know, after after the tour, I was sitting down in the office with with uh, with Dave and with uh, one of the producers there, Morgan. And they said, listen, we have a series that we're close to getting and we're going to be looking for animators. Would you be interested? I, I said, well, uh, yeah, I think I'd be interested. And he said, do you have anything you can show to, <laughs> to show us? I said, well, yes, I absolutely do. And at that time, I didn't go anywhere without a VHS copy of what I had been shooting. And because of where I worked during the day, I had access to editing equipment, so I could actually cut this stuff into a fairly professional manner. So I threw the tape into a VHS machine, and we watched this four-and-a-half-minute scene with this giant spider and this, this woman being chased by it, and, and this whole dialogue scene between her and, and the troll king and all this stuff. And, you know, four-and-a-half minutes goes by, and they look at and Dave and Morgan look at each other, and Morgan says, well, I guess he doesn't need to do an animation test, which <laughs> I find very flattering. <laughs> um and and I said, OK, yeah, I'd be interested to let me know. Uh, and then I didn't hear from them. And I went back to my routines. And it wasn't until, you know, three or four months later that uh, they gave me a call and said, hey, the series is, is up. We want you to come over here. Would you be interested in doing this? Now, at this point, I, I had to make the decision. Am I going to keep working on my film or am I, I going to try and pursue stop motion as a career? 
Um, oh, and also quit your job too, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was gonna. It was gonna be a completely different, different uh, lifestyle. And I thought, you know what? I have to know where I stand in the animation community. You know, yeah. it there again at this time, there still wasn't any type of home system you could use to to practice stop motion so what i was doing was actually way beyond what most people had access to uh, in terms of being able to do animation at home because you still had to shoot on film you know you there was still other than the lunchbox which was prohibitively expensive there was no dragon frame or or any of those programs you couldn't just use there was no iphone there was no there was none of that so there wasn't a lot of people who could actively do stop motion without you know, really, really dedicating themselves to finding a way to do it and, or finding information on how to do it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I said, I have to do this. So I quit my job and I said, yeah, I'm in. And my feeling was, you know, because I'd never worked in, in stop motion or in a studio environment doing stop motion, I thought, I thought I'm going to go in there. I'm going to be the least experienced person there because this is my first job essentially doing this. But I was 35 years old and it, it never occurred to me that, you know, I made my first stop motion film when I was 10. So I'd been animating for 20 years on and off. Most people there were 25 to 30 years old and had been doing stop motion for two years, two, three years at, at best. Right. Most people came to it much later. And uh, I realized very early on that that I was one of the most experienced people there, which totally shocked me. Uh, I wasn't prepared. I seriously was not prepared to, for that. I think Dave Thomas was was probably was the the most the best prepared person there, uh, in terms of he had more experience than just about anybody else. And then after that, it was me and one other guy who who was an exceptional animator, uh, but uh, it, he was he was meticulous in, in a way that I am not when I come to animate. Um, he would take all day to do four seconds, and I I couldn't I could not focus that hard. <laughs> on four seconds you know i couldn't spend eight hours doing four seconds over the course of eight hours if i'm not cranking out 15 20 seconds i feel like i've i've let the day slip away somehow 20 seconds that's like twice as much as the industry average isn't it 10 seconds a day uh, on, on henry's world uh our, our average was supposed to be 11 seconds a day each stage that's... was supposed to produce 11 seconds a day um each episode was 15 minutes long well 15 television minutes, which is, I think, 12 minutes and 40 seconds. Gosh. And um, uh, so, yeah, we had 10 days for each episode. There were uh, 12 half hours, so 24 episodes in total, 24 shorts. What happens if you mess up a shot and you spend half the day? Uh, then you you picked it up the next day um, and uh, or you stayed until you got it done right. But. What ended up happening was, um, other than the first week when things were just sort of ramping up, uh, I was pretty much hitting my quota of 11 seconds right away. Like after the first week, I was hitting my 11 seconds every day. And after the first month, um, I was surpassing it pretty consistently every day to the point where I was doing 20 seconds a day on average. Um, now, you got to remember in a, in a series like Henry's World or any series, there's a lot of scenes that are just exposition, like two characters talking. So you can actually crank through those scenes fairly quickly if you know what you're doing, especially now where you like the video reference system there was much was superior to the lunchbox. So you you figured out how to copy frames, paste frames, how to, hey, I can have the head turn to left and then I can just 
copy and paste those frames in reverse and then copy and paste those frames again in forward and that could that gets me you know three seconds without with only having to animate nine frames right so you you learn all these little tricks uh, in order to because it's serious television there's a deadline you can't spend the kind of time that you would on a feature for instance where you know you'll you'll go do a, a pop through at eight frames or even 12 frames uh, and then you'll do a an eight frame pop through and then a four and then a two and then a one be, like you know before you launch your shot so that shot is 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 so perfect by the time you get to shooting it on ones um, with serious television it's you know get in there shoot it and get out right and as smooth as you can make it but you know if there's a pop here or a pop there they'll live with it because they you know they're on a deadline and everything so your is- your um the films you make on the side i mentioned as a hobby before but a professional hobby you know your animation is superbly smooth and like everything is perfected and how did you feel versus what you're doing on the side to now working where there's deadlines and you know a pop in animation is acceptable did it feel did it feel the same did you feel fulfilled with this i did actually and and the reason probably is the more you animate the better you get at it and 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 the more you know how to animate um and you know if you want to become a good animator yeah i worked on that series for 10 months i was i was animating eight hours a day five days a week plus on the weekends i was animating my own stuff so i was probably putting in 60 hours a week of animation for 10 months if you want to be a good animator you put in that amount of time you really really develop a lot of you, you develop mad skills sometimes like you don't even need to look at your video reference for five or six or seven frames when you get that confident in what you're doing. Um, see, I was fortunate insofar as I, and I always, I always say this is fortunate, but I, I, I could be wrong, but I think it was really good that I learned to animate before there was anything like video reference because you really Every learn. Every animator without video reference has said that so far. Is that right? <laughs> <On the podcast. laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's completely true because you learned how to move things in 3D space without without any reference other than what you were had right in front of you. And you started to learn how much you needed to move things. And you got to remember when you're shooting on film, you would shoot for two, three, four weeks sometimes before you saw anything of what you shot, you know? So I remember when I was shooting on Attic in the Blue, it would take me a month before I saw anything. Yeah, and you, would kn- you wouldn't know, you just move on to the next shot without knowing if it was good, if it was bad. Yeah, you, you really had no idea. And when you got all your footage back, you looked at it and went, okay, that shot needs to be redone you know, oh, look at this, there's a, I left, I left something on the set there, I never noticed that, you know, and there was no, you couldn't erase it, <laughs> it was there yeah. forever, or you shot it again. But yeah, I, I felt that, that having no, having no video reference made me a better, an, makes me a better animator today, uh, because I'm, I'm much more aware of my, my, my environment on the set, as opposed to being reliant on the, the, the monitor, I, I remember when we were there at Kappa and they were looking for more animators and we and we were we did basically weekend classes for people from I think it was people from Sheridan actually. Um, I would watch them animate and and they would have their hands on the puppet and their eyes on on the monitor and they wouldn't be looking at the puppet and and it would drive me nuts. Uh, but you know that's how they that's how they did it. Um, I would try to instill in them the idea that no, pay attention to the puppet and then look at the monitor. Don't don't rely it's so much. It's so hard on the when you have those tools right in front of you. I found myself. I used Dragon Frame for the first time last summer, and I found myself doing the exact same thing, not even looking at the set, 
even though I'd never used any software before, it was just exactly like you said, I would just shoot the whole thing and then play it back all at once on the computer when I transferred that to the different room that was in. And if it was, if it worked, it worked. But then suddenly when Dragon Frame allows you to see every single frame live feed, it changes. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. And I'll, I'll, I honestly, you know, there's one thing that I do that, that uh, probably keeps me not not relying as much on on the monitor and that is i actually keep my my monitor and my uh dragon frame pad uh far from the set mm-hmm. so so far away that i i couldn't actually see it clearly to to be looking at it so i actually have to walk like six steps to get to my sets right now make my make my adjustments go back to the go back to the camera or, or sorry to the computer and, and check it there uh of course there are there are times where i will use the toggle <laughs> the toggle function and right. just, you know when i'm trying to do something really subtle and i keep walking back and forth it's like okay fine i give up <laughs> you know but too much you know, exercise yeah it's too much but again everybody's different it doesn't really matter how you do it it just what the, the results are all that really matter if 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 you can produce you know quality animation by by hands on the puppet looking at the monitor then do it absolutely so, do it there's no yeah. i don't think there's a right or wrong way any bait way you do it that works it works for you great continue i'm not i'm not going to be the one to say no you're wrong <laughs> it doesn't work that way so after what 10 happened? months, 60 hour weeks, what was the biggest thing you learned as uh, maybe it's yourself or as an animator? Like what what was the biggest takeaway from changing your life drastically and then kind of reflecting on that? Um, I, I felt that I knew where, well, now I knew where I stood within the community. I thought, okay, I, I do have a, a certain skill set here that is that I thought was marketable, right? And so I thought, okay, I've, I've done this. I'm going to add this to my my demo reel from my film. And I'm going to, again, make another push to try and get the Lady of Names going on a professional level. But it was a real tricky moment because at that point, um, I had I had uh, the opportunity to go back to uh, a, a previous... I had set up another job, basically, uh, doing similar work to what I had been doing before I was working at Cuppa. And just before my contract at Cuppa expired, uh, the owner called me into his office and said, you know, what are your plans moving forward? I thought, well, you know, I've got another job set up and I'm going to go back and start working on my film and see if I can't raise funds for it and all that. And he said, well, if you're interested, we got another series coming and we would like you to consider being an animation director on that. And I thought, wow, that's that's impressive. And uh, he said, you don't you don't need to give me an answer today. Take the weekend. And he gave me a bunch of material. So here's some scripts. You can go talk to Tim. He was going to be one of the directors. He said, this is going to be a much bigger series, 24 episodes. It's going to take 18 months. It's uh, 12 animators, so two animation directors. Each one of you is going to be responsible for six stages each, and there'll be two directors, and you'll you'll flop between directors back and forth, kind of thing. Wow. And this the series was uh, was uh, for Disney called JoJo's Circus, which ended up going for four years, four seasons. So I think they had a contract with them for over six years. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I was in, very intrigued to, to work on it. Uh, and so I brought the material home and I read it. And I'll be honest, I, my heart sank while I was reading the, the scripts, not because they were bad. They, there was, they, were, they were charming, but they were for a preschool audience. And, you know, I just thought, I don't know that I can stay enthusiastic enough for this material. And I knew how hard it was going to be. I knew that that 18 months was going to be grueling. And it also meant giving up on the Lady of Names, for sure. Like it was it, really that grueling film was, in terms of what? Just getting the work done? Like pushing yeah, all that work yeah. 
trying trying to produce that level and you know because it was disney i figured one the level the expectation is going to be higher in terms of the quality of the animation and knowing the troubles that we had finding good animators uh, you know finding you know six six or eight good animators at the time just to do this one series to to then try and find another you know eight or nine animators on top of the ones that you already had i just thought wow this the 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 growing pains at the beginning of this are going to be brutal because you're going to have a lot of really inexperienced animators and you're going to throw them in a situation where they're going to be under a lot of pressure and you know it's going to be up to the directors and the animation directors to to pick up the slack you know if, if you're not making your quota you're, you're going to be the one that's going to be there you know making sure that you get all the material you're going to need because the, the I can't remember who the other animation director was going to be, but it was going to be someone else who had a lot of experience, who was also a good animator, so that you know they were there to support, to to do work if necessary. And I just thought I'm going to end up animating a hell of a lot in the first in the first year probably. And you know I just thought I don't know that I have the patience and the dedication, especially with this material, because I I was really not interested in the material at all it was sounds like you said no (laughs) so well and that was the thing so so i i went into to to the owner's office on the monday and i said listen you know you don't know how how hard i thought about this and i really appreciate the opportunity and i hope i don't regret this later on but i'm going to turn it down uh and i gave him i gave him the exact same reason i just i just i just told you you know i was really really honest and i said listen you are better off with someone with less experience but who is so hungry to do this that they'll do anything they want anything you ask you're better off with a person like that because they are going to be 100 percent committed to this than you would be with me who is within I'm, i i swear within five or six months i'm going to be standing here thinking how do i get myself out of this <laughs> you know which seems crazy it seems crazy because there's no jobs as animation directors on stop motion series at that time there's right. it seems like an insane decision to make but for me at the time, I just thought, no, this is the right thing. This is the right thing for me to do. So did you keep in touch with who was working on JoJo's Circus and oh, find yeah. out what it was like? I did, actually. And uh, and, and the, the, the first year was probably not as bad as I foresaw. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I did end up actually freelancing with Kappa for a number of years after I left. Um, on JoJo? So- um, I did some I did some of the interstitials for Yo- JoJo's Circus. I think when they were launching the first season, I worked uh, on twelve of the commercials uh, for them. I think I did them over the course of three weeks. Uh, but I was also doing stuff for them. They would call me in to, to animate a, a, a television commercial here, or they did a short Molly Lou Melon, stand tall Molly Lou Melon, or something. I came in and did some animation for that. I, I did actually uh, for six six or eight weeks. Um, I had a I had a break in 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 work and I just you know said hey I, I I'm a, I'm available for for two months if if you guys need anything and they were finishing up on the Fisher Price Little People series mm-hmm. and um, they said hey well if you're available we wouldn't mind if you come in and did some animation on 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 this series I went okay great so I figured I was just going to go in and just cruise through two months of of easy animation on, on the Fisher Price Little People and what ended up happening was the animation director at the time. Uh, nice guy. I can't remember his name, but he's a really nice guy. Um, I talked with him for two days, and then, and then he disappeared. And what? and they came, yeah, they came to me and they said, "Oh, uh, he has mono. He's out of commission for the next two months." 
I went, oh, that's that's terrible. What are you going to do? And he goes, well, we were wondering if you'd like to take over as animation director for two months. <laughs> Sounds just, like this is all a big coincidence. <laughs> it, it was like, oh, my God. So I, I did it. I, I And I, did, I didn't know what the series was, really. Wait, I, where were you working that you had a break for two months before this? What happened was where I was working went on strike. Oh, OK. <laughs> they were what, locked what were you doing? Uh, again, I was working in news. I was working as a oh, motion gosh, motion gosh. graphics uh, director uh, in news, and uh, yeah, there was a lockout, and uh, and I figured it was going to be a pretty long lockout. And uh, literally, we got locked out on the Friday. I was working a couple on the Monday, uh, oh, so I, 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 I there was no break for me. I went into there and I worked there for two months, and and I think three days before uh, they opened up. Uh, the lockout ended uh, was my last day at Kappa, so I basically didn't stop. But again, that was that was that was uh, six or seven weeks uh, working on on that. Uh, and by this point, you know, Kappa was getting really big. Um, they were doing that. They were doing JoJo Circus. They were doing a Celebrity Deathmatch. They must have had about 150 people working there at the time. So it, it was it was pretty impressive setup. You know, there were a couple of different floors in this building and you'd walk around and I knew a lot of the people there because I had, like I said, I had, I had kept in touch in one way or another. My sister worked there as well um, on the administrative side. So, you know, I, I was privy to a lot of what was going on there, but I was also still, again, still working on my film. And uh, it came to a point where, you know, I was getting calls a little too often, I felt. <laughs> to, and I thought, you know, you guys, you got a lot of really talented animators over there. Why do you keep calling me? <laughs> you know, and so slowly I, I stopped. Uh, I stopped uh, taking the, the freelance jobs there just simply because, you know, it, it was it was I didn't need to do it. Uh, and I, I wasn't I didn't feel like I was I was gaining anything anymore anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, from that. It sounds like you kind of went through the testing learning phase with those 10 months and then you were it, you, you reached maybe a state where you're pretty happy working on your own stuff and then working your your motion graphics job during the yeah, day. Pretty much. Pretty much. And, and the thing is, at that point, I was a faster animator and I was I was working a lot on my film. And by the time 2009 rolled around, um, I had finally finished all the animation on my feature so it was nine years of animating on that uh because it's a 79 minute film but again at the time i probably animated close to 90 95 minutes of material can, can you actually give us like a little brief of what the story is about sure sure uh the lady names is about this librarian who is kidnapped by this character called the troll king the troll king lives in a fairy tale world and he has his two henchmen uh, kidnap this woman she's a librarian uh, because she knows the names of all the fairy tales and <laughs> so every time you write a name uh, into this great book of the troll kings that fairy tale is imprisoned in his dungeon and once every fairy tale's name is written in that book then the troll kings will be the only story that people will know right and the whole thing is um, she gets kidnapped the, her love interest makes his way into the fairy tale world and it's all about how the the what he has to do in order to rescue her but she ends up being you know very proactive heroine it was it was kind of interesting in that regard but it's the, basically their two journeys to finally meet up again at the end uh, and they free all the fairy tales so nice. it was a it was a really ambitious story and it was a very nice story compared to the stuff that I'm doing now it's like a complete 180 I, I've tried to find it online. Is there a place to watch it online? There is no place to watch it. And, and <laughs> I, I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, 
what ended up happening was was when I finished the film, and this gets to your original question, what did this oh my gosh. I know it's a long preamble, but again, it takes a long time to get to the point where you get disillusioned in this industry. Oh <laughs> what happened was I finished the film. I did a fine cut. Now, of course, you know, I've got a Mac and I've got Final Cut and I've got Logic and I can do a lot of stuff myself. So I, I do a fine cut of the film with with a temporary score and and some some sound effects in it. And I figured, OK, at this point, I think I can finally convince some funding agency to help finance post-production because I want to do a real post-production. The film was shot on film. And I wanted to transfer it digitally. I wanted to do all, you know, give it all the bells and whistles that you could. So once again, for the third time uh, in that film's history, I sent it out to all of the financing agencies I could find and tried to to contact production houses, anybody that would take a look at it. Because I figured, okay, this film, it's it, it, there's nothing left to the imagination. It's right there to look at. You know, yeah. all you need to do is is be convinced that it's worth investing in into the sound effects and the music and that's it uh but once again you know and this time was was more frustrating than any other time once again i was met with rejections right across the board nobody would take a meeting with me in terms of production houses like no one no no sorry we're just not interested nobody was interested and none of the uh, the canadian funding agencies uh you get the form letter you know due to the vast number of qualified applicants this year we only have limited number of funds therefore you know we cannot supply you with funds but don't take this as a sign of the quality of your product you know that kind of thing so i was left with you know this film and i'm thinking oh crap i i, I don't I never feel comfortable asking people to do anything for free. If I'm going to, if I want someone to do something and I, I want to pay them and yeah. I didn't feel comfortable trying to find someone to do 65 minutes of music for this film. Cause I wanted a big orchestral score and I knew it was going to take a lot of work. So I ended up, you know, getting a MIDI keyboard and doing it myself. And it took me a year to do the music for the film. And I'll be honest, it was it was a great experience. I loved doing the music for the film. And, and so I didn't feel that was a lost year because I learned so much. Uh, I was a, I'm a big fan of music, uh, of uh, film scores, you know, so I, I have like a couple thousand film scores that I listen to. And and, and so I, I knew how to to I'm not going to say I knew how to make the music, but I knew the kind of music I wanted. So I would listen to cuts from, you know, Alan Silvestri or James Horner or John Williams and go, OK, that little bit there, that's that's what I want this bit to sound like on this scene. And so I try to, you know, replicate something similar to it, you know, using orchestral samples and the keyboard. So okay. I spent the year doing that. And and basically it took me about 18 months to finish post-production on, on the Lady Names. So after, you know, essentially 14 years, the film was finished, was actually finished. But it's and, not anywhere that anybody can. Has anybody watched it? Yeah. Well, what happened was was I uh, I used the fact that it had taken me this long to promote it during its festival run. Fourteen I, years in the making. Exactly. You know, the one person's dedication. billion hours. All those lines that you can think of, I used them all. <laughs> you know, in the promotion of, of it, and I sent it to to uh, a bunch of festivals over the course of 18 months and it did really well it pay played in over 60 festivals around the world it oh won gosh. won uh, nine awards for best animated feature most of these were mid-sized festivals no big ones like it didn't play at the toronto international film festival or Cannes or south by southwest or anything like that but you know it played at a at decent sized festivals all over the world and it won a bunch of awards 
And I thought, this is this is great. You know, um, I'm, I think I'm finally going to be able to sell this thing because now all it's finished. All I need is distribution. So um, I started to get contacted from contacts from distribution companies uh, who were interested, you know, because uh, a lot of distribution companies will send uh, people to not the small festivals, but the medium and large festivals, they'll send people out and to see how people are reacting to certain films and they'll, they'll take their notes and then they go back to their to their corporate office and they say, hey, this film got good reaction, this film got good reaction. And then they decide whether they want to, you know, take a look at it or not. And so I got contacted by, you know, a few distribution companies regarding Palladian names. And I thought, this is great. And um, most of the offers were were charitably saying uh, they were they were awful um but there was one company actually they were all awful um i would hand the, the, what, the is, off- what does awful mean like well let's put it this way um they were offering uh basically pennies on the dollar for every uh, dvd that was sold so if you sold the dvd for 20 bucks you might get 10 cents from that 20 bucks uh, and to and to me, I just thought that's ridiculous. You know, that's that, now I would I would send these these contracts to a lawyer. They would look at it and and every single one. I think there was only four contracts that I had them look at. Every single one, they would come back to me and say, "Do not sign this. This is a terrible contract. You know, this this is a terrible. Every single one. This is a terrible contract." And so yeah. I would I would try to go back to these companies and say, "Well, listen, you know." I spent a lot of time on this film and, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this contract that doesn't make any sense in terms of deliverables. Uh, and this is something that, that, that is not as, as complicated today as it was. And this is, we're talking 2011. So it's not that long ago that we're talking about nine years ago at that time, you know, we were already into, into a digital era and these guys were asking for a 35 millimeter blow up of the 16 millimeter master. And I just thought, what in the world do you need a 35 millimeter print of this for? It's you're never going to throw show this theatrically. You, it, you don't need this. Why are you asking me for this? And if, and they wanted me to pay for all this, mind you, right? Oh so the, the list of deliverables was going to cost me somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars. And on top of that, this and this is this is this was the worst worst case scenario. This company was asking for forty thousand dollars up front from me in order to start the process. And I said, well, wait a minute, what do you need $40,000 for? The film is the asset. Shouldn't you guys be, one, paying for the deliverables, and two, using the, the investment on the deliverables, you can pay that off through the royalties that I would have gotten from the sale. And they're like, no, we don't do it that way. Sounds and like I, they make money off of you, who's well, eager exactly. to get their film out there, and it never actually does anything, and they make money in the end. <laughs> exactly. And and, and I, was, I basically said, look, you're asking me to invest in another $100,000 in this film. I said, I paid for every aspect of this film. Now, it didn't cost me that much to make it, if you consider the fact that it was amortized over 14 years. But still, I still had paid for it all. I said, you want me to invest $100,000 in this, and you're offering me basically 10 cents or 5 cents on the dollar. I said, what? in order for me to break even on a $100,000 investment, you're going to have to ship 300,000 units of this film. I said, what in your library can you use as, as a comparable to tell me that you can ship 300,000 units of this film? And they gave me the, you know, the song and that's, well, you know, there's nothing that's, that we can compare it to. This is a unique film, all this, all this kind of garbage. Oh my gosh. And I said, I said, well, look, you know, if, let, 
let's say you could you could ship three hundred thousand units, and and I you know and that's gross revenue, right? There's no way that that you would see that 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 your three your hundred thousand right off the top. But let's just say for argument's sake that you could move those three hundred thousand units. I said in gross revenues, that's six million bucks at twenty bucks a pop. So you're going to walk out of this with five point nine million dollars, and I'm going to break even. <laughs> I said that doesn't seem right to me. And 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 the the person at the other end said, well, said, well, don't you want your film to be seen? And there I knew right go. there. there I knew I knew right there. I said, that's it. I said, you guys, I said, I would rather lock my film in a closet and have nobody ever see it than have it generate six million dollars for you Wait, and so me not get any. Is your film just locked in a closet now? Other than those, I, those, I can I can look over my right shoulder and see the closet that is locked in. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, at least put it up on the internet somehow, so if people can watch it, I want to see it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, and, and and that was and that was the point too. That was that was the disillusion point right there. That's when I said I quit. Um, I said I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, but not... it also sounds like you had some pretty bad experiences where you invested an insane amount of your own time and resources and got like. You well, essentially, was nothing out of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and that's why I say at that point I said I quit. I quit. I don't want to work in this industry. I don't want to be a part of this industry. I'm not making another film. I'm not doing no. this anymore. And so, and I meant, so, I meant it at the time. So now that you've said that and live that, do you have any regrets? Regrets of wanting to experience anything from the professional industry? I don't. I, mean, I actually like working I, I don't. with a team or I don't know being around other people that are stop motion animators all day as well. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a good sense of community um, in terms yeah. of that. I, I still work. I still work part time um, doing the same sort of, of, of motion graphic work that I've been doing for a number of years. And, and, you know, I, I work with animators, you know, three days a week at, right now. And so I, I still have access. It, they're just not stop motion animators, but it, you know, people who work in graphics and in design and in animation, they're, they're very creative people, and I have a, a great experience working with them in, in that environment. The best thing about the environment that I currently work in is that I'm not invested in it on, a, on an emotional level. You know, I do it as work. And my biggest concern with, with and the reason why I turned down the job initially at Kappa for JoJo's Circus was I didn't want stop motion to turn into work. I was going to start hating stop motion, and that's not something I really wanted to happen. I that's knew that, that it would become something that, that I would dislike at some point, and then I would, and so, I, and so I didn't want that to happen. And like I said, right at the beginning of this, if you want to be the one telling the story, it's really, really hard. If you want to work as an animator, you can get work as an animator. I think. I think you can find the places, um, and and whether it's whether you get to do stop motion or whether you get to be an assistant or whether you're doing a different kind of animation or something peripheral to stop motion, there's work to be had. You can find it. But if you want to be the one telling telling the story, to be in charge of the story, there's very, very little chance. Uh, of of that happening easily you really have you, have you considered hiring a small team to create something instead uh, I of don't, doing everything yourself you know i don't think that way anymore uh, i'm yeah. really happy doing the the films that i do uh myself and i mean the way i got back into it was after i had uh, i had you know locked up the lady in names uh, which i do actually intend to finally release probably within the next two years uh, but that's only because, you know, 
things have come around and I'm, I'm five years a long time. <laughs> well, and he, and here's the other thing I've always said, you know, it's a shame to have spent 14 years on something and nobody see it. I mean, other than the, you know, the few thousand people that saw it during its festival run, you know, but, um, what happened was, was after about 18 months of, of not thinking about making a film, not doing anything. Um, I was like lying on the couch and I was watching this horrible movie from 1962 called the brain that wouldn't die. And it's about this. Yeah, it's a terrible movie. Um, it's in the public domain. Uh, it's about this this scientist who accidentally decapitates his fiance in a car accident, but he keeps her head alive uh, in his home laboratory. And he that goes out to amazing. bars. Yeah, well, it's just, it's a crazy black and white, low budget. It's it's fantastically bad, <laughs> but it really scared me as a kid, and it stuck with me. <laughs> and I have a DVD copy, and every now and then I pull it out because it, I love to watch it. Um, and as I'm watching it this time, I, I start to think, you know, I think that's a really solid short film to be made out of this concept. And so I thought, maybe maybe I, I could make another film, but make it the way I made films when I was a kid in terms of just doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I had the infrastructure in terms of I had a place to make it. I had camera. I didn't have camera, but I had set. Uh, materials and and I had leftover uh, armatures from the Lady of Names uh, still sitting there waiting to be used and I thought you know what all I need is a camera body a couple lenses and dragon frame and I'm ready to go and so for an investment of you know a thousand bucks essentially I could be up and running in in basically a week so I thought you know what for my own purposes I'm going to just do this and I had no agenda I wasn't looking for work I wasn't looking for distribution I wasn't looking to impress anyone I just wanted to do it because what had really happened with the Lady of Names was that I was angry at the industry, but I never, I never stopped wanting to make films. You know, right. in the back of my head, I still wanted to to create material. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. So I sat down on my computer and I literally typed out the script in in one sitting. And what I what I ended up shooting was almost essentially that script. And it took me about you know two years. I spent about eight or nine months in pre-production, sculpting characters, building sets. Uh, and it's a pretty simple film in terms of one location, uh, uh, one character that could walk, and one character who's just a talking head on a table. So the animation-wise was going to be very simple, but it's very dialogue-driven. And uh, I spent a year shooting it, and uh, and when it was finished, I, I, it turned out really well. Uh, and I, nice. I finished it, and I literally, the day after I finished it, did the fine cut and the, and the final mix, um, I looked at it and went, yeah, it's good. And I threw it up on YouTube. No <laughs> thought to anything else. Just uh, I'll throw it up on YouTube and see what happens. And uh, I thought, you know what? There's probably some festivals out there that would show this, even though it's on YouTube. So I started to research festivals. And, and I ended up sending it out to about 40 festivals. It got accepted into 40 festivals. And uh, it ended up winning, you know, four awards for Best Animated Short. And I thought, wow, that was, that was a really enjoyable experience. When you took all the pressure of doing it, with an agenda out of it yeah. i just thought that you was a lot of fun happens. yeah that was a lot of fun and when i was getting to the end uh, of shooting um i had another idea for another short film and i thought uh, you know what I, this is going so well i'm enjoying myself i'm going to do another one right on the heels of this one and that one turned out to be hive and that one i knew was going to be a little bit more work because I was going to build everything from scratch. So I didn't build any new armatures for broken. I didn't, you know, everything was, was, was old material. So with this one, I was building new skeletons. I was, uh, the designs were based or were original designs, not based around pre-existing shapes because the characters in, in uh, broken 
the main character, the robot character, was just based around the armature that I had. So whatever it was was going to be was going to be the shape of whatever I could fit in that armature. Uh, whereas with Hive, it was going to be there was no there was no limits. I could I could design characters any way I wanted, and and so that one took the same amount of time to make. There was a little bit more time spent in pre-production, but animation was really quick on that one. I think I finished the animation. That's another 10-minute film. I finished animating in about six months. Um, and for some reason, those puppets were really easy to, to animate. They were, they were to this day, they were the easiest puppets I've ever animated with. And I don't know why. They were. I was concerned going into it that it was going to take me a long time because they're sort of insect characters. So they have two legs. They stand on two legs, but they have four arms. Right. And I thought, oh, all those arms keeping track of where they're moving and all this stuff. And it's going to be a disaster. It was the exact opposite. So much fun to animate those guys. Strange. And, I, and, I, and as I was getting to the end of that film, you know, I thought, you know what? This again, this is this. I'm really enjoying this. And I had another idea for another film. And uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't even finished this one. And I had the idea to, for the next film, which turned out to be Filth. And the funny thing with Filth was I thought, you know, these you know, Broken and Hive are very message-driven films. You know, I'm trying to make a point about something. You know, Broken was about love and loss. Hive is about extinction and 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 religion. And, and I thought, you know, big concepts for a short film. And I thought, you know what? I want to do something that is just entertaining. And I based the whole script around, I wanted two puppets to have a fight scene at the end that ran for like two and a half to three minutes. I just wanted two puppets to like beat the crap out of each other. But I wanted the fight to be realistic in terms of its its presentation. I didn't want over-the-top fights like a Marvel movie or celebrity deathmatch or anything like that. I wanted the, the fight to be as if it was really happening so that by the time the fight ended, the characters are bleeding, you know, and, and they're they're struggling to stand up and they're breathing heavy and all this stuff. Something completely different than, than what you would expect with an animated fight. And so I basically wrote the script backwards from that fight scene. Um, and Filth was the most fun I've ever had making a film, like hands down. I was laughing half the time when I was animating because of what I was putting these characters through. Because, I mean, the film starts 10, 10 seconds, 20 seconds into the film, somebody gets shot in the head. <laughs> 40 seconds into the film, a rat is eating that person's brain. It's just, and, and it just goes and goes from there. You know, every scene has, has extreme action. And uh, when it was finished, I thought, this is, this is the best thing I've ever done. And because of that, I decided I'm not going to put this online right away. I'm actually going to try and hit up some of those festivals that won't accept films that are already online. So I ended up sending it to about 80 festivals. And it had the best festival run, but the most schizophrenic festival run I've ever had for a film. Um, what does that mean, schizophrenic? Well, what happened was it ended up uh, playing in about 40 festivals. Uh, in those 40 festivals that it played in, it was nominated for awards 21 times. And of those 21 nominations, it won 13, most of them for either best short film of the festival or best animated film. That's pretty good. I was, you know, was the, like I said, in terms of festival run, that was the, the best I had ever done with anything. Uh, but it was also rejected by 40 festivals, like flat out rejected. And, and I found that to be so odd that half of the festivals that it played in it got awards in, but it was rejected by. <laughs> yeah. I oh. So I just thought that's just that's so weird. Um, the most frustrating thing with with its festival run was that it never played in an animation festival. And I entered a dozen of them. Weird. And, yeah. That's even and worse. I just I, I found that very, very frustrating insofar as 
you know, you want your animated film to play in front of a, a crowd that appreciates animation. Um, and I mean, I could only look at it in two ways. It's either one, the the film is long for an animated film. It's 15 minutes. And animation festivals tend to want to show, would rather show five three-minute films than one 15-minute film. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, quality will often, you know, cause them to to change their mind if if they want which led me to my second idea was that it the content is is pretty extreme for for an animated film uh filth has a lot of profanity in it and it has a lot of violence and while the violence is somewhat over the top thank god it's in black and white the film in color is is a sight to behold uh because i'm i shot the film in color so i i know what it looks like in color and i I look at it and I think it's fun in black and white. It's gross in color. <laughs> I mean, it, the, because the blood is all black and white, you don't get the sense of how how red the screen is covered in blood in some of those scenes. I mean, the fight scene at the end takes place in a morgue. There's dead bodies on tables and stuff like that. It doesn't look like that when you watch the film. If you watched it in color, you get a whole different sensibility from it. But I think so that that's... The, the festivals it played in were like horror, horror festivals? Absolutely. Absolutely. It played in, in pretty much every horror festival that I entered, it got into. And a lot of times it would play as the short ahead of a feature that was, you know, an extreme feature kind of thing. Mm. Um, although in one festival in Michigan, uh, this was my this is my all time favorite uh, uh, screening. I never got to go to it, but I just appreciated the irony of it. Uh, it screened ahead of The Bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> uh, which I thought was perfect because when I was making this film, there's a lot of references to the Bride of Frankenstein in it. The, the the female character in it is based on Elsa Lancaster. I was actually using uh, pictures of her when I was sculpting her, the, my my female character, Brain Rot. Uh, uh, I was using her character from Bride of Frankenstein to sculpt her face and her appearance. Uh, my main character, my my big brute guy, uh, I based on on Boris Karloff's. Uh, stature in Bride of Frankenstein or the Frankenstein monster. Um, so there were a lot of references to Bride of Frankenstein to start with. And I didn't know that anybody would pick up on it, but this this one festival picked up on it and put it ahead of that film. And I, and it was just fantastic. So <laughs> that so that's why I say, like, I mean, I became so disillusioned with the, with the industry that I didn't want to work in it, but I still wanted to make films. And I would say that the last eight years, uh, I've had the most fun making these short films more fun than I had in any of the years that I had when I was trying to actually get productions going. And even though, you know, those productions, the, the early stuff all got broadcast, they won awards, they did all the things. And I was, I was actively working. They don't, they don't shine a, a candle to, to this stuff. I, I just love the stuff that I'm doing now to the point where now I'm working on, on my next one, which I was going to ask you what's next, but how many have you made in total now? I've made three in the last seven years. Okay. And um, the fourth one is well in for, into production now. Uh, I finished, I started shooting at the beginning of this year. So I'm about three and a half, four minutes into this film. It's probably got about a year before it'll be finished. This one is, is again, each one of these films at the time was the most, uh, was one was, was somewhat ambitious for the moment in time. If I was trying to make Broken again today, it would be very, very easy. But at the time it was, it was difficult. This film that I'm making right now um, is a Western and it's, but it has, of course, different than your style. 
It is very different. And and that's one of the things that I like in terms of, of, of when I do these things is is I like that the next film is is different from the last one, like completely different. This one's I'm shooting like widescreen, like my aspect ratio is 2.35 to one. So it's, it's like cinemascope aspect ratio. Uh, it's a Western. It's got a lot of tans and browns and, and sepia look to it. And I never think too much about when i'm writing how hard it's going to be to put these things together and right now i'm in the process of of building another set and the amount of detail that has to go into like a saloon i mean i, I picked all of the iconic locations from westerns and uh and the only reason i'm making this film is because at the, a year ago at this time i was reading a biography of sergio leone the guy who directed uh the clean eastwood films from the 60s the spaghetti westerns the good the bad and the ugly for a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more and you know it popped into my head hey it'd be cool to make a, a spaghetti western but in stop motion but it, it never occurred to me how hard that might be uh so i picked all the iconic locations the saloon the the blacksmith the sheriff's office the the one room cabin the you know the tree in the middle of the prairie with the noose hanging from it you know that all those iconic images that you can think of for a western i threw them all into this script and now yeah. i'm having to build all this stuff and i'm realizing oh my god there's a lot of stuff that has to be built to fill in these sets but you know so far it's looking really nice. I mean, I'm really happy with the way this is looking. And uh, again, it's going to be another you know eight to ten months before I get the animation done. But I, I'm I'm very optimistic that this is going to be another really good film. Nice. It sounds it sounds almost like success for you right now with your films is just having enjoying the experience. I guess. Do you still like when you're animating? Are you also thinking about the reactions of people when it hits the film circuit, like the festival circuit? I don't think about that feeling in your mind. I, I, it's probably way back in the back of my mind, but yeah. I don't think about that when I am either thinking about making a film or coming up with concepts in terms of character designs or or even uh, dialogue and, and mm -hmm. location. I'm I'm literally making them to please myself. What kind gotcha. of film do I want to see? And and that's the tricky part. And that's why I say it's very hard to be in charge because the the content that I like, the kind of films that I want to make. They're not mass audience films, quite honestly. I mean, Filth is not a film for for a mass audience. Right. Know, it's it's an adult stop motion film. How big of an audience can you possibly find for that? You know, you're not you're not gonna. But that's the story I want to tell. You know, so for with with the new film from Hell, uh, what's the hell is it called? From Hell He Rides. It's going to be the same thing. Like, how big of an audience are you going to find for a stop motion western? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. I, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to enjoy making the thing. And, and that's to me, it, it becomes I'm not at a point now where I'm not again, I'm not looking for work. In fact, right. every year I, I I graciously turn down offers to to work on stuff. I, you know, I have, you know, the, the traditional the Facebook page and, and the YouTube channel, all that. And people can contact me through there and I get offers to work on music videos and stuff like that. You know, once or twice a year, I'll, I'll get a, a, an email from some band or some person who wants something for their corporate video or something like that. And I, I, I you know, I, I thanks very much, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't do things for other people. Would there be an offer that you wouldn't be able to resist? Like if Netflix that's, comes that's, to you and says, here's, here's a very, multi-million dollar budget. Oh well, yeah. Okay, well, if you're gonna go talk, going into those levels, probably there is something out there that I probably couldn't resist. But there's a very Godfather type thing to say. Sure, I'm gonna fair. make him an offer he can't resist. 
but uh, there probably is something out there that that I might consider, but it would have to be something that allows me to to have a lot of creative control. Um, yeah. Because I've, 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 I'm spoiled now, right? Oh, yeah, you have all the creative control. I, I have all the control. I, I have all of the stuff that I need. And I'm, I'll be honest, my films are incredibly cheap to make. I, I would be surprised if filth cost more than two thousand dollars. Oh wow! Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, you wouldn't know it to look at it. And, well, and where does all the money? I'm assuming you're not you're not accounting for your time. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I mean, as soon as you start as soon as you start putting the human costs into it, the price goes through the roof. Of course. Uh, but if well, you're just well, looking at supplies and, and, and that kind of stuff, it, it's not that expensive. And if you own in, if you own Dragon Frame and you got a camera and the lenses and the lights, well, what else do you need? You, you, I'm working in my own in my own basement, so I'm not paying for overhead in terms of rent or anything like that. Uh, so, so you can actually write that off as a tax credit that you, uh... you could. You could <laughs> if if you had if you had expectation of actually earning uh, money. You can't just write it off just because you're making right, them, right. because otherwise they just assume it's a, it's a, it's a hobby. But if there's expectation that you could earn money from it, then yeah, you could you could write it off. And actually, while I was making the Lady of Names and Attic in the Blue and Close Up and Foresight and all those all those live action films that I was doing back in in the '90s, um, I was claiming that as as a write off because I had expectation and I made money. You know, when I made Attic in Blue, I sold it for broadcast. I I took the ten thousand bucks, invested it into uh, Close Up, which which I sold for ten thousand dollars, and invested invested another fifteen into the next one. So, at that time, I was like my own little industry. I had my little core group of people that I worked with, and over the course of five years, I was actively making films, earning money, and turning them around and reinvesting and making another film. But you know that that gets very very tiring, and it gets yeah. it's very unstable. It's a very unstable lifestyle. Well, one thing that really impresses me about your story and path is just kind of how you've built this whole lifestyle that kind of, you know, you, you have your day job where you don't feel emotionally invested, but it, it's fulfilling. And then you can make these short films on the side that are completely fulfilling. And, and it's kind of like this whole like machine that you've developed with your life where you're, you're it just keeps going, I guess. <laughs> it does. Uh, and as long as my, my back and my legs hold out... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll probably keep doing it for for at least another decade. Well, one thing one thing that comes up pretty frequently on this podcast is people saying they wish they had more time to invest in their own stuff while they're working in the studio and whatnot. Are there things that you would recommend or tips of how you've been able to do this specifically? Like how yeah. how do you work a, a job for full time and then you know wake up in the morning and do this year after year? It's really hard. I'll be honest. It, it is very hard, and I and I sympathize with the people out there who who want to do their own thing but can't find the time. Uh, there's a there's a number of reasons why I can do it, um, and and I know this sounds this may sound horrible, but one, I don't have kids, and that's a huge thing. <laughs> I know. Number one, get rid of your kids if you have them. <laughs> it's true though. Like if you don't if you don't have kids, then then that frees up you know, a significant amount of time. And I don't mean that in, in a negative sense at all. I don't mean to say you shouldn't have kids. Uh, but but if, if that one part of your life, which is all encompassing for almost 20 years, you know, 15 years of your life will be dedicated to your to your family. Right. To, to raising your kids. And if you have a number of kids, you you now add another five years for every, well, for well, every what one. Is, of what does your partner think of this, of your, your she's aspirations? Oh, she's completely comfortable with it. Like she, she we does have. She been, ever, does she ever have a small acting role, a voice? No, 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 no. I, we, our worlds are separate. <laughs> so, 
so other than kids, uh, what other tips would you, do you have like a strict get up time or like something that puts you in the mood or not, not really. Uh, see, the fact is because I started making films at a very young age, um, yeah. I made my first one when I was 10. Um, so I don't remember a time that I wasn't making films. Like I honestly, it's like between me and my brothers when we were growing up, uh, you know, every summer we'd make two or three films uh, between the, the the three of us, the four, three or four of us. And so by the time I, I finished high school, I'd already made 26 short films. Um, <laughs> and it that was a great education right there um, in terms of learning how to make this stuff before you before there was any idea that, that you could make a career out of it. You know, we were just doing it for the hell of it. And in a lot of ways, that's what I'm doing now. I sort of reverted yeah, back. Kind of, yeah, exactly. You've gone back to your childhood. Yeah, exactly. And and, and uh, now I see why I was such a happy kid. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that you feel is missing in your aspirations for filmmaking right now? At this point, I would say no. Um, I'm, I'm, I am content with gotcha. where, well, that's a, where that's a really be. nice place to be i think that's that's really excellent actually it I feel is like a, lot of, a lot of people strive for many years to meet some goal that is once they obtain it it's like well what's next <laughs> but it sounds like see, you're in a constant state of well, see, like the, thing, the thing with the, specifically with animation is is you know a lot of us got inspired by something that was really large like, right. Most people who like to do want to do animation saw something when they were young that inspired them. And it usually was something big. It was it may have been Nightmare Before Christmas. It might have been a Star Wars movie, but it would have been uh, something epic. Right. That yeah. sort of hit you in the face and went, wow, I want to do that. Right. But the gap between, you know, you as a 16 year old saying, I want to do this and you working at ILM seems so vast that it just seems like this is an unattainable goal, right? But you have to approach everything in terms of steps. You're not going to go from from your basement to working at Leica. Mm -hmm. But you can go from your your basement to school to your first job where you'll be surrounded by people. You may not be doing exactly what you want to do, but you'll be surrounded by people who are are like-minded, who... Many will be more talented and have more experience than you. And as long as you you learn from them and you're professional, put in a full day's work, you know, be attentive, uh, you will slowly move up uh, as long as you have the abilities and the talent and the dedication. Uh, you will yeah. find yourself moving up over time. People get disillusioned very quickly, you know, and it happens in everything. It's not not just filmmaking, but in any in any aspect, like people get disillusioned uh, when things don't happen fast enough, and they think, "Why am I not further along?" And if you have the patience and you and you dedicate, you know, your your extra time to your craft, you will find it moving along. Uh, but I, you know, like I said, I sympathize. Like if you're if you're working a forty hour week and you're commuting in the middle of all that, and then you have your, you, all you have is your weekends, it's really really hard. To have to find the time to create material. I'm lucky in so far as I work very long days, but only three days a week. So I have four days. That 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 creates a lot of good time for me to to work on my stuff, right? And I like to work at night. I'm a, I, I'm a night owl, so I I can work from you know basically eight o'clock at night till one at one one thirty in the morning, and I, I I can do that pretty religiously over the course of three or four days. So. Uh, 
I, I have no time, no no problem finding the time. And I don't, I don't, I, I've never tr- been much for traveling or vacations or, you know, going out to shows or dinner and all. I, I've always been very much a homebody. So, so all those aspects have kept me able to, to, you know, focus on making a lot of good films. At least I gotcha. hope they're good. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so this, this coronavirus situation right now is no, no different for you, I guess. <laughs> well, it's very funny because a lot of people have said, um, I, I posted something today on Facebook and, and, and somebody responded uh, that uh, this is the one production that the coronavirus couldn't sh- shut down. <laughs> And it's funny, and they're right, because it's like, I work alone, so... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, I've actually, you know, just been continuing to work, to plug away. Um, you know, I'm hoping to start animating again next week. I'm between sets right now. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I hope to start animating again next week, and, and I'll have, like, four to six weeks of animation ahead of me before I have to build the next set. So well, I can't it, wait to it, see it'll be a lot of fun. Create in a year. I really like what you said about the steps, because... I mean, you know, I have a I have a big dream too, and sometimes it feels like it takes so long. And then at the same time, I can look back and see that I've actually made some major steps in terms of my skill and who I know and my comfortability and confidence and stuff. But it's, it does feel like there's this huge gap between what you want to do and where where you currently are at. So just gotta keep your head down a little bit and and keep uh, pushing to the next level, I guess. And those first steps are the hardest. I'll be honest. They are the hardest because most people don't know anybody to get them in the door. Right. So it's that much it's that much harder to get that first step out of the way. But the second you can make that step, um, things open up to you very, very quickly. Uh, because mm-hmm. now, now, now you now you know more people, and they know people. And if as soon as you start to know all those, you know, peripheral uh, people, you start to know. You get your ear to the ground. And you start to hear. Oh, I hear there's going to be work over there. I hear there might be work over here. And as long as you're willing, again, me, I, I, I don't. I'm not. I was never that interested in being mobile, running around, moving from city to city, chasing one job or another. Uh, I was. I wanted to be able to stay in one spot. And that that's huge when it comes to animation, especially stop motion. If you want to work in stop motion, well, you're going to have to move around. You're going to have to be comfortable with the idea of moving around yeah. uh, because the work is, you know, it's in Portland. It's in the UK. It's in Los Angeles. These are the places where the work is. Um, it would be nice it, over time if, if, you know, working at home, if that could happen. But with something like this and that you need the infrastructure of a studio, you need to have everything all in one place. And those places are few and far between. So if you want to work in certain areas, you got to live in those areas. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it depends on the caliber too. Like for instance, there's, there's Kevin Perry, who's all over social media and he does everything with stop motion out of his house, but he's not working on fil- like films or, well, he used to be working at Leica, but he's not working on films or TV productions anymore. He's doing like branded stuff for social media. So I think, right. The options are changing and opening up more, which I think is amazing. Um, but yeah, you're right. If you want to have work on a production, there's no way you can do that at home. <laughs> no, no, there's just it'll never happen. Um, but yeah, there. And again, you have to know what what it is you want out of things. If you're happy doing branded segments for for other people's companies, hey. Again, there's work to be had. There mm-hmm. is work to be had. You know, every individual is going to be different. And, and like I said, me, I'm kind of stubborn. I don't want to do stuff for other people. <laughs> you know, I'm stubborn that way. I want to do my own thing, and that's that. And and you know, if it means that I'll never make a penny out of it, I don't really. It, I I can live with that. 
That's fair. That's that's totally fine. I like that a lot. And and I I like that you uh you you go so hard at it, at it too. Like your films there's so much polish that you don't see in even a lot of uh TV production stop motion. So yeah. But you also have the luxury of if that's what you want to do, you can you can do that however long it takes you or whatever it takes. So That's true. Any- and then go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, what I was gonna say is the, the biggest the biggest thing is is knowing when to stop, because uh, <laughs> I actually have conversations about this because I actually there are people that I work with who who follow on a weekly basis what I'm doing, and the the biggest question they always have is well how do you know when a set is ready or how do you know when a sculpt is ready? It's like I, I you don't really know you just have to you just kind of have yeah. a feeling for it right um, yeah. because there are people who can you can get get caught up in the minutiae. I remember reading how Peter Jackson would, would have in Lord of the Rings, oh, every closet was filled with all the stuff that, that Bilbo would have in his closet, even though we're never going to open the door. Well, what the hell is that good for? You know, <laughs> That's ridiculous. I would never do that. I, I storyboard my stuff right down to the last shot, and I, I, I put my camera down on a set, and I look at what is going to be in shots, and then I fill the set with only as much as I need to build. Yeah. And that's it. Well, and I guess in productions, time is your, you know, time says you can't work on this anymore. But yeah, that's good to have as well. Do you have any yeah. final advice for someone who, you know, they dream of working in stop motion or on their own, directing their own films and they're not sure where to start out? Or they're still dreaming of being a director and they're currently working in a studio? Um, I. I would say, you know, follow follow that dream. I mean, I mean, my experiences are my experiences. They're mm-hmm. not going to be the same for anybody else. Um, just because, you know, what I went through uh, did what it, you know, what I went through did what it did to me, doesn't mean that you're going to have the same reaction. In fact, quite honestly, you never know that that where you're working right now might not lead you down a completely different path that you weren't expecting, but you find way more fulfillment out of. So, you know, just keep on doing what makes you happy and hopefully it'll work out for you in the end. Yeah. Was there anything else you'd like to share to wrap it up, Adam? Uh, no, I just, uh, I hope that if, if people have listened this long, that they enjoyed what they heard. <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I'm still listening. That's for sure. Uh, well then, if that's all, then thanks for coming on the chat, Adam. It's been a really great pleasure to have you and to learn about your entire journey of uh, living the dream. My pleasure, and be safe out there. <laughs> Thank you. And if you are listening and you'd like to follow Adam's work or get in touch with him, you can do so by reaching out to him through his website, Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook. And I'm going to include all those links as well as the ones to his short films in the description of this chat. And that is all for now. So thanks for listening. Okay, bye. <laughs>